of you know we're Foursquare. That's our denomination. Foursquare, Foursquare, you know, we, we, we don't celebrate Foursquare so much. We celebrate Jesus in this place, first of all. But we wanted to take some time this year um, to just kind of go back to our foundations and, uh, and you know, what the Foursquare you know, four gospel is. And uh, some of you have, have maybe never seen those symbols before. That's what makes us Foursquare. And so over the course of this year, I'm so excited about this. We're going to have four different speakers spread out through the rest of the year. Um, so we'll have four different Sundays. And today is our first day. And um, we're going to hear about Jesus as our Savior this morning from my good friend and your good friend, Bill Boylan. And so, yeah, you can welcome him. Him up. Um, I could say I could say many things about him. He's a scholar. Um, he's he's a, he's a very wise man. And um, I think one of the smartest things I did when I came back here to Pastor Destiny was determined that I was going to meet with him. And and thankfully he said yes. Um, he's been. But more than anything, this morning I just want to say that this guy is a, a friend um, and and a pillar for me. And I think, I think many of you would agree he's a pillar in this church. Um, he's, 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 Jesus is his foundation, and he's going to lift him up this morning. Would you welcome Bill Boylan? Can you hear me? Oh, I can hear me. So, well, I've said this before. I'm a teacher, not a preacher. So I'll be teaching... And you have in front of you, most of you, uh, uh, some notes for you to take. And uh, there'll be a test next Sunday on those notes. And if you don't pass the test, you can't come here anymore. (laughs) So, uh, So I'm a teacher, not a preacher. And I just want to share with you to begin with um, a little history about Jesus' church. Going back a couple thousand years, uh, if you liked history in school, you might find this interesting. If you didn't like history in school, just tune me out, play some games on your phone for a few minutes. I'd like to move around too when I'm teaching, so don't let that bother you. I don't like standing behind a pulpit. Jesus told his followers on one occasion, just once, in the whole Gospels, said, I'm going to build a church. It's going to be something that's never existed before in all of history, this thing called a church, and um, brand new, never existed before. And let's see, I want to make sure we get the visuals up here, a visual of Matthew 16, 18. Here's, here's where Jesus said he's going to build my church. You can read that yourself. And after he said that, Peter added that uh, Jesus is going to build the church using living building materials, not bricks and mortar. And those living building materials are you, me, us. Jesus' church is not an organization. It's an organism made out of living building materials. And this is not a church. We're the church. 
Churches aren't buildings. People are the church. Show that next visual then. Here's where Jesus conceived the church, so to speak. Says that he, this was shortly after he was resurrected. And it says he breathed, took a deep breath, breathed into his disciples, just as God had breathed life into Adam, and said, receive my Holy Spirit. Then, a little later, here's where Jesus' church was born. It was 50 days later, and you can read that. That's when the church was born, 2,000 years ago. And then, uh, I want to make sure we understand this, the next visual, please. Next one. I'm, I'm sorry. Let's go back to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. After he'd been brought to, back to life by God's Spirit, Jesus appeared to his followers, saying, I have power and authority over all creation, and uh, wherever you go, all over the world, make followers of me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Spirit. Never forget, I'll be with you for all time. That's his basic instructions to absolutely every one of us here. It's not the pastor's job. It's not the elder's job. Not the council's job. It's our job to do that. Because you're one of those living building materials. Okay, the next, I want to make sure that uh, very clear when I talk about church. I want to give you a definition of church. The church consists of all, whoop, There's one that says definition of a church. Have to take these notes now. Remember, there's a test next week. The church consists of all people, everywhere, everywhere, in whom Jesus dwells in his unbodied form of the Holy Spirit. That's church. Don't exclude anybody that doesn't think like you, believe exactly like you do, talk exactly like you do. Anyone in whom Jesus lives in the person of the Holy Spirit is part of his church. Now and in heaven. It's a universal church. Well, in, in Matthew 16, 18, if you want to show that again, in the old king, my voice is fragile this morning. In the old King James Version, of the Bible, if you read Matthew 16, 18, it kind of sounds like um, the gates of Hades and death are on the offensive against the church, and the church is kind of trying to hold out against that onslaught. The opposite is true. The church is on the offensive against death and hell. And it's a living, growing, thriving organism. It's alive, it's victorious, it's growing. And it will not be stopped 
by any power in heaven or on earth. There's no power in all creation that can stop the empowered church made up of empowered followers of Jesus. Nothing will ever stop it. So, okay, that's the worldwide church, the universal church in, in heaven as well as on earth. But what about, as you saw the visual a few minutes ago, the international church of the four square gospel of which we are a part. Where does that come in? We're just one little branch of this worldwide uh, body of Jesus. As far as destiny itself, this church, it was born in 1998, 25 years ago. That's why we're having a 25th anniversary celebration. Uh, it was given birth by Brent and Tana Parker, who left here about four years ago. Is that right? Four years now? And Brent will be here. Maybe both of them for the birthday celebration. And we look forward to that. Okay, let's, a little more history. For a few hundred years before 1900, there wasn't much going on in terms of signs and wonders and miracles throughout the world. There were some. But that had sort of died out since the early church. In 1900, actually December 31st, 1899, in Topeka, Kansas, in a Bible school, a young woman started speaking in tongues. Nobody had ever heard of that for a long, long, long time. And then that sort of went west to California and by 1906, a man named William Seymour, wasn't educated, just a simple guy, um, rented a barn on Azusa Street in Los Angeles and began holding meetings, just talking about Jesus. And all of a sudden, miracles, signs, wonders began to break out. And people from L.A. started coming to this barn. Then people from California and all over the U.S. And then people began to get on ships and come from all over the world. And that spread, began to spread around the world. And that's where what we call the modern Pentecostal revival. Uh, it's where the Assembly of God Church was born where the open Bible churches were born, and essentially where the international church Fourscore Gospel was born. Well, we've already seen a uh, photo of Amy Sample McPherson. She was a young woman, only in her 20s, who kind of piggybacked off what was going on in Azusa Street and began holding her own evangelistic meetings in LA and around the country, and lo and behold, more miracles, more signs, more wonders, people praying in tongues, all sorts of wild things. Uh, in fact, her meetings grew so big that she even built a special auditorium 
in Los Angeles, Angeles Temple. And it's still there, still in use today. In fact, in May, some of, there's a big international conference and some will see Angelus Temple. Well, you've already seen the symbols of the Foursquare Gospel. That word actually comes from the book of Revelation uh, where John saw this beautiful city coming down out of heaven it says it was built four square. That's where we get the term four square. And that's where Amy Semple McPherson um, got the term. Well, by January of, January 1st of 2023, a few years after William Seymour, Amy Semple McPherson began to sort of feel that that Pentecostal movement had lost some a little something. And so she, on January 21st, uh, sorry, January 1st, 1923, she legally founded the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. That's 100 and years and three months ago. And that's why the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel is having its centennial celebration this year in that area. And I might mention that little four-square church that she founded January 1st of, 20, of 1923 has grown amazingly. 68,000 four-square churches around the world right now, of which destiny is just one tiny branch of that. Well, um, Sean already mentioned a man named Jack Hayford. Some of you know of him, some of you perhaps don't. He, he was a member of the Foursquare Church since the 1950s, very influential in magazines, spoke around the world. He actually wrote over 600 songs of which we sang two of them this morning. And I think he's still quite well known. Um, he edited a Bible called the Spirit-Filled Life Bible. That's the Bible I use for my studies. I've had this since 1990. Bought it in a bookstore in Phoenix. And that Spirit-Filled Life Bible has gone all over the world. So the Foursquare Church has, has um, had a lot of influence around the world. And the current president is a man named Randy Remington. I guess that's all the history I want to say. So I'm kind of done. You can go home. Uh, no. Actually, I've got about three hours worth of notes, so I'm kind of trying to shorten that a bit. Okay. I'm going to give you a basic definition of what it means that Jesus is Savior. I'm going to take a little different approach this morning than perhaps what many of you have heard in the past. The basic definition 
of Jesus as Savior, he has saved us from sin and death and replaced those with his own eternal life. That's, that's the basic definition. What it means is when, I think, when it says Jesus is Savior. Saved us from sin and death, replaced those with his eternal life. But I want to flesh that out a little bit. Now, a lot of you have been, if you've been around church for <clears throat> any length of time, Maybe you've grown, grown kind of numb to the overuse of this thing about salvation. I've been around a long time, and I know that some of you who've heard about salvation, maybe your whole life, may have a tendency to tune me out right now. And that's okay. I've been tuned out by a lot of people. But listen in, and maybe I can give you a little different take on what this thing salvation really is. So that, but that's the basic definition. What he's done for you, what he's done for me as Savior. Saved us from sin and death and replaced those with his own eternal life. But, you know, it, uh, salvation is a concept that many people really don't understand that clearly. Um, it, it's still kind of a mystery to a lot of people, even those who are followers of Jesus. It's an old-fashioned term, being saved or salvation. And th there's this question that comes up. Why salvation at all? What do we need saved from? You don't need saved unless you're in danger or in peril. So what, what, what do we need saved from? Well, that's kind of the approach I'm going to take today. First thing is, many people will respond to say, well, we need saved from hell. You've all heard that. But the good news about being saved by Jesus doesn't begin with the fires of hell, especially if we look at Jesus' own example. He began his own teaching with tender words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He didn't begin with hell. Well, the fire spoken about in the Bible are real enough. For example, there's the lake of fire written about in Revelation. But Jesus didn't start there, and I don't think we should either. If we try to base our understanding of salvation on avoiding some sort of eternal conscious torment, we're never going to understand it clearly because we're going about it backwards, so to speak. So I'm going to begin somewhere else. I think, and the scriptures teach, that we need to begin by telling people how much God loves them, 
how good he is. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Doesn't just display love or exhibit love. He is love. That's his basic character. That's his basic nature. Let me put it this way. God cannot not love. God cannot not love. Psalm 11968. God is altogether good and absolutely everything he does is good. He cannot not be good. And then Romans 2.5 clarifies it. The goodness of God causes people to repent. Not the meanness of God. The goodness of God causes people to repent. Well, again, question comes up, you know, what do we need saved from, if not from hell? And I think the answer is so simple, and we make it so complex. We need saved from ourselves. I need saved from myself. You see, there's a little throne right at the center of each of our lives. And either I'm on that throne or God is. And it's really that simple. Salvation means to replace God on that throne where I've been all along. And without God, God on that throne, we're left to ourselves, we're, we're alone, we're sort of empty. And of course, if you lead a busy, fast, paced life, you, you may not feel empty or alone, but that's just an emotion. Without God on that throne, you are alone. You are empty. You can try to convince yourself otherwise, but, and I'm not speaking about a mere emotional feeling of aloneness. I'm speaking about what's called by the psychologist existential aloneness. I love it when I can say those big words. <laughs> Called existential aloneness where at the very core of our being, there's just something missing. And what's missing is a relationship with God. If we're not living in a daily, conscious, ongoing relationship with God, then we're alone, whether we feel alone or not. Our feelings are real, but they're not always true. So I, I guess I'm saying, as I understand it, without God in your life, a relationship living inside you, you're alone, 
and you're empty. And I think the Bible says that very clearly. I know just from being around for a long time that some of you hearing me speak today are that kind of lonely. Like a dreary, empty existence just going through one day after another without much, if any, contact with God. Um, In an old song by Ray Charles, he sang about old, lonesome times that just won't go away. Some of you may remember that song. And another old song put it this way, lonely days and lonely nights filled with despair. To make those old lonesome times go away, make those lonely days and lonely nights filled (coughs) with despair, God just simply says, I'll never leave you. For all time and eternity. That's why we need Jesus as Savior. That's why one of the four foundations is he deep down inside of each of us where no other person can go in the, in the deepest part of our inner being. Only two options exist. I'm either alone or God shares that throne inside of me. I think it boils down to that very simply. Either alone or you share that inner portion of your life with your Heavenly Father. Friends, parents, spouses, nobody else can go in there with you except God. Either you and God can live there together or you're by yourself. And I know some of you feel that this morning. You're experiencing that. You're listening in my voice, and I think God is speaking to you and saying, yeah, that's, that's what's going on. That's why I'm empty and, and so, so alone. Well, here's, here's another way of approaching that. Every human at some point in their lives is thirsty and hungry for something real. That's why Jesus addressed it this way. He, he said on one occasion, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. You knew he wasn't talking about the kind of water we drink. On another occasion, he proclaimed, I'm the bread of life. Eat of me. You'll never be hungry again. You know as well as I do that a lot of the bread the world offers us is very stale and moldy. And a lot of the water that the world offers us is very polluted. Only Jesus offers the water of life and the true bread of life. Well, there's another aspect of this. In some respects, there's a, a hole, 
uh, inside of each of us, an emptiness. The reason for that, I want to say this the right way. The reason for that is when God created us, he left behind a tiny, tiny little piece of himself in each of us. That's disputable, but I think the Bible teaches that. And then we subsequently chose just to strike out on our own. And that's why so many of us have a, a delusion of independence that we can, we've deluded ourselves into thinking everything's okay, we can get along without God, we don't need him. That'll catch up, that delusion will catch up with you all too quickly. You see, that little piece of God that he left inside of us is like a tiny, invisible, spiritual homing device that he left there. And, and nothing is going to fill that. It's always pointing us back toward our creator. And we resist it and we deny it and we delude ourselves. We humans are strange creatures. Another way of looking at why we need Jesus as Savior, in addition, there is this huge hollow spot, this hole deep down inside of us. It just won't go away by ourselves. We, uh, we try to fill it with drugs, alcohol, pornography, sex, more money, empty, meaningless religious practices, wearing the right clothes, big boy toys, money, meditation, larger house, more costly vehicles. None of those are going to fill that hole. Only God, if we ask him to. Okay, another myth I want to talk about, perpetuated by some, is that salvation is only for terrible sinners. Sin is nothing more than our sins causing us to believe that we're separated from God. Sin is not, sin singular, is not something you do. It's a description of that inner part of us where self is on that throne. We're living our lives without a conscious relationship with God, doing our own thing. So the essence of sin, singular, is to be self-centered rather than God-centered. It's really that simple. That's, that's sin, singular. That's the conflict between my will and God's will, your will and God's will. 
And, and that can be either outward rebellion against God or just a passive indifference. Yeah, who cares? I'll meet God someday and maybe he'll like me. That kind of indifference. <laughs> but the result's the same. Good people are sinners just as much as bad people are sinners. Don't let your goodness fool you into thinking you need God any less than the most horrible, bad person who ever lived. Okay, that's sin. Now, sin's plural. That's what we do. Sin is what we are. Sin's plural, that's what we do. Bad things that contradict God's simple purposes for our lives. He has a purpose for each of our lives. And we keep screwing it up. If we're not living with God in us, we need to repent about the bad things that we do that contradict God's purposes for our lives. Patty can tell you about repent. Metanoia. And followers of Jesus aren't immune from sins, plural. The life of a follower of Jesus isn't a life of perfection, especially holier-than-thou type of perfection, but one just of trying with God's help to conquer what the Bible calls our sinful nature. We're all human. Followers of Jesus are human. Don't, don't let a follower of Jesus who is a holier-than-thou hypocrite mess with your head. Well, not understanding this is, is damaging to an understanding of salvation because it conveys the notion that our need of salvation is based on wickedness. It, it implies that only very bad people, genuinely miserable and evil, wicked sinners need God at all. But the fact is, we all need Jesus as our savior from both sins and sin and just being a sinner. So most of us here don't, don't consider ourselves to be evil or wicked, but we are a sinner and we do sin. It's not a question of good or bad. It's a question of needing Jesus in our lives, not being so alone and empty. We need God not because we're going around committing heinous sins all the time, but because we're supposed to share our lives with God. We're supposed to be in a relationship with God. So we're all sinners together, decent people, mean people, good people, bad people, until we let God into our lives. We just need that relationship with him. So if we're not living today and tomorrow in a daily relationship with God, we need him just as much as a 
wicked murderer on death row. Don't let this thing of wickedness mess with your head. We all need that relationship with God. It's not about badness and goodness. It's about the difference between aloneness and relationship. So salvation, I'm still kind of fleshing it out, is living in an abiding, daily, deep, conscious relationship with God. That's what it is. Forget about wickedness or bad or good. Are you living in that deep, abiding, daily relationship with God? How are we doing on time? Okay, I'm gonna, I have about three or four hours worth of stuff here. Um, I'll, I'll shorten it a bit. Okay, one more major point. Perhaps you've come to believe um, another myth, delusion, the mistaken notion that God is a very mean and abusive father that he's mad at you, just waiting to cast lightning bolts into your life or somehow sadistically punish you in various other ways. That's an absolute lie. But even the insurance industry believes that. They call stuff acts of God. Like he's this bad, mean God. <laughs> God isn't watching your every little move just waiting for you to mess up. God gets blamed for, for so much. The bad things we humans do to ourselves and to others. It's not God doing that. The Bible teaches throughout. God is altogether good. Absolutely everything he does is good. He cannot do bad things. We do bad things to ourselves and to other people. We don't need God to prompt us to do that. God's eternally good. He loves you now and forever. And he'll never abandon you as he helps you work out all, <clears throat> all his good purposes for your life. Well, how does all that start? Jesus used the term born again or born from above. And it's an actual second birth, a spiritual birth, just like you're born as a human. I'm trying to say this is... Okay, here, here's what born again is. First of all, it's not a formula. It's not a magic formula where we recite a little brief prayer, although I'm going to have you do that, that sort of clears up everything. The reason I know that is because one night in the Bible, when a man asked Jesus how to be born again, Jesus didn't give him a formula. In fact, he compared being born again to the wind blowing unseen through our lives. This process of inviting God 
into our lives for a relationship with him is an invisible process like the unseen wind that each person must discover for himself or herself. There is no magic formula. There just isn't. When we reduce born again to a magic formula, <laughs> we make it too complicated. Okay, one final thing. Another myth that's come down to us through the years is that salvation comes instantly in a moment of conversion. Salvation can begin in that instant, in a single moment, with just a brief prayer request. It takes just a few seconds, but salvation is an ongoing, abiding, deep, conscious, daily relationship with God at the center of our lives, not just a magic phrase we say at some point in our lives. I said that magic phrase many years ago when I was 18 years old. But that was just the starting point. Just the starting point. So, once having been born again, letting that unseen wind flow through our lives, God custom tailors it for each one of us. There are three important ways we can cultivate this new relationship with him. Very simple. Number one, spend time visiting with God. Two-way dialogue, not one-way monologue. Secondly, read and study the Bible to discover the new type of ongoing conscious daily relationship he wants you to have with him. And third, I guess this is a biggie, obey God. Just do those three. Pray, read your Bible, obey God. You will grow as a follower of Jesus. About the Bible. The Bible, by definition, is God's complete, final, written revelation of himself. That's the written, but there's also the living word, Jesus. And the two kind of go together. God didn't give us the Bible just to inform us. He gave us, he gave you the Bible to transform you, not just to inform you. Okay, I think I'll wrap it up. I just want to say this. Salvation isn't easy. This is no cotton candy faith. This thing called living a life in relationship with Jesus. Men and women have been tortured and died and suffered horribly through 2,000 years 
for no other reason than they, they were known as followers of Jesus. Jesus didn't win any cheap salvation when he died on the cross. He, he actually prayed to be spared that cruel death. But in the end, he trusted in God's love and goodness, said, not my will, but yours be done. It's not cheap grace. It's a hard-won salvation. When God himself died on my behalf and your behalf. That's a biggie. But this, this, this gutsy thing following Jesus is true. God is love. God is good. You can trust your life to him. Don't let Jesus' death on the cross be for nothing. Jesus is Savior. So, I'm just going to say out loud a brief prayer that you can either say, follow along with me to yourself or out loud, and um, get started or get restarted if you need to. So just follow along with me to yourself or out loud. Then, while we're singing another song, I'm going to ask you if you want to just come up here and let two or three people pray for you. So, follow along to yourself or out loud. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for being so good. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. Open my eyes to recognize that I need you. Thank you for forgiving me. I invite you into my life. I give up the right to rule my own life. Help me grow into the godly man or woman you want me to be. Now we're going to sing a song. Uh, my research indicates that Amy Semple McPherson used to uh, sing this song in her meetings a hundred or so years ago. It's on the back of the blue paper. It's called Saved, Saved. It's an old gospel hymn. We're going to sing that. And if you feel like you'd come up, like to come up here and just have somebody pray for you, if you come up, I'll invite uh, Patty. You can stay there, Sean. I'll invite Patty and maybe uh, Bob Morgret and Jim, if you would be available. So we'll see how many come up. You, you, coming up here isn't magic. You're just kind of making a statement that, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus the rest of my life. I've been following for almost 70 years. He is good. He does love me. And I just want to kind of make a public affirmation of that by coming up here. It's not magic. But God may do something inside of you. That's up to him. He, God's the only one who can convert people and transform their lives.